0: Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, General Partner at Kindred Capital. With me today is Erin Gelbard, the CEO and co-founder of Bloom & Wild, which sends 6 million deliveries of plants and flowers every year to several million customers across eight countries in Europe. They have raised over $100 million, but these are just the headlines. Let's get the real story on Founders Uncut. One of the earliest challenges of the Bloom and Wild journey was about a year into the company. Aaron and the team decided that the technology choices they had made wouldn't sustain them into the next phase of growth. So they had to decide what to do next.
1: We had uh, started off... um trying to build out our minimum viable product, trying to build our technology um, quickly and cheaply so that uh, without having raised much money, we could get something live and start to learn from our customers. As we started to scale the business, we realized that some of the processes that we needed to digitize were different to what we thought, and we realized it was gonna be really hard to carry on building on, on that platform we'd been working on for a year. And so we were faced with this choice between realising that we needed to grow up as a business, uh, that we'd learned a lot from that first year and that we needed to rebuild our platform uh, based on those learnings, or out of fear of a sunk cost, uh, try to continue with what we had so far. And we were fortunate to have met a, a brilliant um, a person who started off as our, our tech advisor. He's now a longstanding non-exec director. And he really encouraged us to take the more difficult path and uh, start building again from scratch, hire great engineers to build our new platform. And I'm so glad that we did. And that platform that we started building on eight years ago is still the core of the platform that we operate today.
0: Yeah. And if you were to give advice to anyone who's starting out now, because a lot of people who have an idea, but maybe don't know the technology side, if you were to give advice on someone day one, how do you think about making the right technology choices so that you know you're going to be able to scale?
1: I think there's a tension between two things. On the one hand, I stand by the value of a minimum viable product because uh, you do want to get something out there quickly and inexpensively in order to get customer learning. For example, when we where pre-launch we thought our business would be mainly a subscription business. And actually we thought a big part of the business would be catering to businesses rather than to consumers. And within the first few weeks of trading, we we learned that we were going to be mainly a consumer one-off gifting business. And so if we'd spent twice as long working on that pre-launch phase, that would have been more waste. On the other hand, sometimes the decisions that are the right decisions to maximize learning are not the same decisions as the right ones to maximize uh, scalability or or commercial success. And I think uh, founders tend to like working in an efficient way because they don't have many resources. So the dream scenario is that you're decisions can both optimize for learning and be scalable, but sometimes that trade-off is just inherent and you do have to make that choice. And I think recognizing where that's the case and not being afraid of making that difficult decision is a really important skill early in the founder journey.
0: And how do you come to that decision yourself, right? Like you said, it can be a very difficult decision and I think we've talked before about the fact that sometimes you're focused on product for the company or tech, but you've also built an incredible brand. So, how do you make the tough trade-offs of knowing like where to spend your time right now?
1: I guess I I I try to be really clear on what we're trying to achieve and why. And that's not that many things for our consumers. And really, you know, the reason why we come to work every day. We're here to achieve our vision. Our vision is to be the destination for making life a little more thoughtful and beautiful. And That's quite a clear vision for us. I think it it inspires us because it's a positive vision and so it's something that I enjoy getting out of bed and thinking about every day and so did my team. It's also um, a vision that's relatively easy for people to understand and and articulate. And so we're thinking about gifting, we're thinking about new product categories, we're thinking about making the customer experience um, the best that we can every day, being responsive to feedback and just having this real clarity of what we're trying to achieve as a business is um, is super important for me and I think is important for the team as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And a lot of people take on technological debt or other types of debt as they're focused on one thing. So I think you always have to figure out which trade-off is most important at the current moment. So you had talked about being in eight countries before and having this really great customer experience. How do you think about international expansion? Because tons of companies in Europe do this every single day, but we get it wrong a lot. We get it right a lot, and I think it's really challenging to know what's different and similar country to country. So, can you talk a little bit about your path to international expansion and some lessons learned, either good or bad, along the way?
1: Sure. So, we realized quite early on that we both wanted to and needed to build an international business. The opportunity to make a better flower company, so have a shorter supply chain, therefore have uh, less expensive products for customers, have a lower environmental impact, build uh, technology to make the customer experience excellent and build a brand that people love. That's an opportunity that exists in many countries around the world. There's nothing inherently UK specific about that opportunity. So given we were working hard to solve these problems uh, for the UK, our natural inclination was to think, are these problems relevant in other countries as well? And we thought they were. So the opportunity was there. I also think that um, the UK is only about 4% of the global flower market and about 10% of the European flower market. So while there's a big opportunity in the UK, I think both for us and for our early shareholders and and board members and team, we wanted to go after that bigger pan-European opportunity. So we were pretty internationally minded from the beginning. It was only a couple of years in that we started planning out our international expansion. When we did so, we initially focused on expanding into Germany and France. We thought those were um, the two countries where our model would be most easily replicable. We also thought we'd be able to get learning uh, more cheaply and quickly because we would be able to replicate much of our business without even opening new offices or setting up complex new supply chains and things like that. What we learned um, from that international expansion is that we started to see a very different path in Germany to in France, so our business immediately scaled about uh, five times faster in Germany than it did in France, and actually that uh, delta and trajectory remained the case um, throughout the first few years of our international expansion. As we thought about why that was happening and started to understand the sort of customer and operational reasons, and um, it became really clear to us that the operational model that we'd set up in Germany was well set up for success, but not the one in France. And also that it was going to be really difficult to win in France with a, um, a sort of imported British sounding brand in our category. And so um, that was the early days of us starting to think about growing through m and acquiring businesses, as well as um, expanding uh, organically. And so we, we started to form a, um, an inorganic strategy. We were then extremely fortunate uh, at the start of COVID. We saw our business accelerate more rapidly. A lot of people were not able to see their loved ones and really uh, turned to using flowers as a way of expressing emotions, a substitute for a real-life hug. And with that um, good fortune, we're able to build up um, our cash reserves. We're also able to, uh, to raise money in order to fund... An acceleration through acquiring other businesses and so we did that in 2020 and then in 2021 last year we acquired two companies and um, a French business given uh, the challenges that I, I mentioned about reaching a winning position in France that business is called Bergamot based in Paris and then we also acquired a business in the Netherlands called Blumon which is a subscription-focused business, but also one with a big investment in sourcing and uh, flower bouquet production. And those capabilities have been really relevant to us group-wide, and we can talk a bit more about uh, our integration and uh, what we've learned from that.
0: I would actually love to talk about that because I feel like there's a lot of startups who do M&A, but it's often not as talked about for some reason because there is a lot of talk on the organic side of growth. How do you think about the integration of cultures when you do m and I think that's always one of the most challenging things.
1: So this is something where we've learned a lot. I think in the early days, we thought, you know, both, about, both the, I focus on Mon, which is the first acquisition we did in the larger one and our more integrated one. So I spent a lot of time during the deal with uh, Bart and Patrick, the founders of BlueMan, and we felt that we had a lot in common um, in terms of culture and ethos of how we do business. We both wanted to solve problems quickly, create great customer experiences, disrupt the industry, use technology to do so. And so I perhaps naively assume that the cultural integration would be therefore quite straightforward. And in practice, it isn't straightforward at all because I think a big part of why people um, work at a a startup or a scale-up is the culture. They choose to work with a group of people who they know well personally. They have a high degree of trust in each other. And if you add in a whole additional group of nearly the same number of people again, or even more people, then that balance does get thrown. And all of a sudden, people have got to deal with many more people Um, including people they don't know, have never met in person. In the case of COVID, perhaps can't meet in person because uh, travel was uh, impossible for the first few months after we did the deal and they're very restricted after that. And so for all of those reasons, you're changing people's circle of trust and it's actually quite difficult to readdress that. And as we went through integration, we realized that we were going to have to be very deliberate about building trust among people that was going to need to take time. It was going to take a lot of effort from me to go out of my way to to try and earn that trust um, from folks whose followership had been to a different set of founders for, in some cases, for many years. And that we're also going to need to do it, I'd say at like a relatively grassroots level. So it's not just about people trusting me or not trusting me. I think that's important, but it's only a small part of it. It's also about people trusting the way that, uh, their new colleagues work um, day to day and there's a commonly used word uh, in the Netherlands which is curious and it's a it's a word that we've incorporated into our new group wide values because um, we think that that sense of curiosity and really sort of understanding how other people work and not assuming that your way is the best way just because it's what you're used to was so important and I personally was going to need to Show humility and openness to doing things in a different way and set that example for both my legacy Bloom and Wild colleagues, but also folks from Bloom on. And through that, we would start to respect each other more and build a stronger culture.
0: Yeah, and it's also curious about the small things because even if you're aligned at the 30,000 foot level, like you're saying you were, the micro culture is so different, right? The way you communicate, the way you make a decision, and across cultures, but also I'm sure across companies as well. So that makes a lot of sense if you continue to acquire companies going forward, how do you think about a new market, whether you would consider going yourself or making an acquisition? Is it kind of like the French market where there needs to be something local or how do you make that decision?
1: Yeah, so I guess we are um, unusual in our industry in that we have now uh, made some acquisitions. So I wouldn't say we're well-beating experts at it, but I think we've learned a lot from having done two acquisitions and we know what the end-to-end process looks like and there's a lot of things that we didn't get right that um that we've learned from and wouldn't repeat so we're um we're certainly open-minded to doing acquisitions an acquisition doesn't necessarily need to be geographic either so um nor does expansion more broadly so one of the things that we're asking ourselves is does it make sense to be in more countries and or does it make sense to start getting into other product categories as well and We've, uh, we've been selling plants in addition to flowers for a number of years now, and those have been grown to be a decent uh, percentage of our business. And actually just recently, we've started to get into um, other product categories too. So we're now selling standalone chocolates and confectionery and uh, scented candles and diffusers as well, which are based on our customer research, other gifting categories that our consumers are really interested in buying. And by catering to those gifting moments as well, we think we can become more relevant to our consumers and help them express their emotions for more of their um, shopping missions or or gifting moments. And I say that because I think um, it can be quite easy to think about geographic expansion as the sort of focal point for further growth. And on the one hand, the geographic opportunity is very big, On the other hand, we're in eight countries in Europe already. They represent 80% of the European flower market. So further geographic expansion uh, is either into countries where the absolute opportunity is smaller or it's outside of Europe where the complexity is much greater. And so while we don't rule that out, I think it's important to also think about this um, category or business model uh, expansion as well. And that's front and center for us.
0: Yeah, that's great. And... Let's go to the founder journey a little bit, because I feel like you've done an incredible job scaling and an incredible job building a great customer experience. I've been the fortunate beneficiary and giver of Bloom & Wild Flowers, and it's been an incredible experience. But the founder journey itself is, is really not straightforward, even if the end customer may feel that everything looks easy. Tell us a little bit about what surprised you on the founding journey with Bloom and & Wild and what you didn't expect going in.
1: So I guess a few thoughts on this. and um, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. My, my dad is an entrepreneur. Three of my four grandparents were entrepreneurs, so I always hoped that I would um, do something like this. I also, growing up, saw plenty of downs as well as ups um, in my dad's journey, and so I was uh, aware that it isn't just sort of uh, you know sailing off into the sunset at all, and that it's actually um, really hard work and that you do need to, to roll with the punches. That said, um, I don't think I appreciated quite how hard work it was going to be. I used to um, work as a consultant uh, with retail and tech companies, and I worked pretty hard doing that. But just needing to do literally everything yourself, between you and one other person across such a wide range of disciplines as you get started is, um, you know, professionally the most taxing thing I've done. And um, I still remember those early days and... um, you know, just the, the superhuman effort, um, and uh, you know, for example, uh, sitting on a bus between investor meetings and trying to process orders um, on a computer because uh, you know we, we needed to save money, so I had to get a bus between investor meetings, but we also um, didn't have anybody else to process the orders for us, and we hadn't built the technology to automate it. So some of those early um, days were um, were incredibly hard work, but I also think that. Um, you know, being resourceful and, um, knowing how to, to juggle tasks and prioritize is really important. And so um, you're like
0: hoping your hotspot works on the bus. <laughs>
1: that, that, that's what the only case.
0: Amazing. And what, what did you use for Wi-Fi on the bus? Was it hotspot or something else?
1: Oh no, I used my, whatever personal hotspot on my phone.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're just like hoping it works. Mine, mine screws up all the time.
1: As we've scaled, I, I guess I, you know, I luckily don't do that um, anymore because we've, um, We've built out a team, but um, we've also, you know, I guess like many founders at the same time as scaling the business, um, I've also started a family. So I um, I met my wife, now wife Caroline, um, in my old job. We got engaged shortly after I started the business and I remember thinking, you know, she, um, she must really believe in me because um, I'm, you know, leaving behind a well-paid job to start a business and um, doing online flowers, which isn't... Uh, you know, isn't what my professional background is. And, um, you know, in the early days, my uh, my learning curve about the flower industry was pretty steep. Um, since then, we've uh, got engaged and got married and um, we have two young daughters now. And so on the one hand, I'm as committed as ever to the business. On the other hand, I have a family that I'm also extremely committed to that wasn't there at the beginning. And so I've, and it's also, not fair for me to put the business first and then, as a result of that, not be present um, at home, uh, not share domestic uh, chores and tasks um, with my wife, not uh, be around for our girls and and be a present dad. So I guess as uh, I've gone on uh, on this journey of uh, nearly 10 years, I've also become maybe more ruthless about prioritizing because I want to do what's really important for our business but i also want to do all of those things that are um, important for my family as well and uh, i think you know it's quite common for um, for founders to uh, go through both of those journeys at the same stage of life and i, I do think it's um, it makes you make better decisions i used to at the, uh, in the early days go to every single networking event that i um, i got invited to cuz i thought that an opportunity might come of it i'm now more disciplined about that because going to a networking event means, um, you know, not being around to see my children at the end of the day. And some of them are, are certainly worth going to, but um, but a lot of them aren't. And I, I've learned to sort of really think through what's going um, to benefit our business and, and focus my, where I invest my time around that. And having a family has been a really valuable forcing function there.
0: That's great advice. I think I've been thinking through those <laughs> same prioritizations these days, and it's, it's good to know that you've been on that journey. And how do you think about, the not necessarily the balance between the two, but just keeping your own sanity in that process? I know you're part of a a founders forum, which is you and other founders. And actually, maybe not everyone knows what that is. Do you want to maybe talk about that for a minute?
1: Of course. So um, I'm part of a a group of nine founder CEOs. We've been meeting once a month for um, around five years now. And over that period, we've uh, developed an incredibly high degree of trust in each other. We very early on decided to really establish that trust and um, you know, set as a norm for our group that we would uh, not be secretive with each other. We'd share openly what we were thinking and feeling and that we expected everybody to strictly respect the confidentiality of what's discussed in the group. And I think in the early few months, we were a little tentative because it felt risky. Now that we're five years or so in and we know that we can trust each other and none of us has reached the trust of any of the other for this extended period it's become an incredibly valuable group and we've gone through individually or collectively in our group a number of really difficult both them um, business situations but also personal situations and so having that group of people where you know that they're genuinely on your side and really are this support network and here to help and um, has been extremely valuable. And um, if uh, folks listening to this podcast aren't um, a member of a group like this, then I really encourage you to form one. Uh, there are lots of organizations out there that can help you do so. And um, it's really helped me a lot.
0: Yeah, I think it's incredible. Um, we, we run them at Kindred. Um, and one of our founders told us that it was the most impactful thing he had done in the last 18 months. And I'm curious, is that one of your main ways to maintain sanity as a founder? Or do you have any other other kind of go-tos?
1: I've got lots of other go-tos as well. So um, family time is important for me because when I'm focused on my daughters, I can't be um, doing uh, businessy things um, as well. And so I think children really notice when you're giving them your proper attention versus um, some of your attention. And so I try to be deliberate about that. I love cooking and I I do all of the cooking in our household and I really enjoy that. It's also um, mindful time away from a screen which i think is uh, is healthy and um i also you know i guess like many of us try to put in a good amount of exercise and uh, have uh, have realized that nobody else is going to look after my health if i don't do it myself so try to make time for that too
0: yeah that's important and back to the founder forms for one second so you know, you get really close to these people. If you've been seeing them once a month for five years, and it's obviously something worthwhile that you take the time away from the family and the business to go do. I mean, it is for both of them as well. Does it blur the lines? Like, do you end up becoming friends with these people that they come integrated into your life? And is that a beautiful thing? Or is it kind of something where you recommend that people who set up forums have that as just the forum and it doesn't really bleed into your day-to-day life? Do you have a preference on what you think works best?
1: It's interesting. I would describe all of these people as my friends. But I don't socialize with any of them outside of the context of the forum. And I don't think any of us really socialize with any of the others um, outside of the context of the forum. Obviously, you sort of bump into people here and there, you're at the same event or something. So it's not like a, a hard and fast no-no. But our interaction really is based on our forum rather than on other sort of parts of our social life. Um, I recently turned 40, for example. I didn't invite any of my Forum to my um, my fortieth party because um, I just felt like it's a different compartment of my life. It's not that I um, sort of like them less than the people I invited to my party, but it just felt like our interaction is in a you know a different uh, life domain. And I, I personally find some of that separation um, a positive, and you know get a lot out of and think I can contribute to these different circles, but they don't necessarily need to overlap with each other.
0: You're really comparing a lot in the business, also some of the personal front as well. But I think you're sharing that business journey. And it's probably true. I was thinking that the other day of a lot of your, the people you've built businesses with before, you would call them friends, but you, and you would probably start business with them again. But that doesn't mean that they're your best friends stand up in your wedding. They probably could be for some people, but that, that overlap doesn't always exist. Right. So I was just curious how you set that up. And if you were to start another business from scratch right now, is there anything you would make sure hundred percent you would do exactly the same or that you would do completely differently from bloom and wild?
1: I would consider um, doing it with a bigger founding team from the beginning because, as I mentioned, it was there's just a certain number of things that you need to do to get started. And for better or for worse, I am quite sort of perfectionist. I think I I would find it difficult to just ignore a large number of the things. But on the other hand, both the volume of things and the range of skills required to do the things – is really significant um, I, we didn't have a, um, a founding CTO for example and I think as a result of that uh, you know, we talked a little bit about technology choices and um, I think we could have made more progress and um, more rapidly if we did so um, if I was to start again I would try to bring together a group of people who I thought between us could really sort of uh, help us uh, get started rapidly out of the blocks and build something very successful.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I also think as I'm thinking about what other founders might be thinking about, if you have investors or people that you know, I know we have one of my friends is an angel investor in your company, actually. But I feel like sometimes you don't even know what that looks like, right? If you've never hired a CTO before, you don't know what a good CTO looks like. And so you almost need to find someone in your network who can help show you how to hire this person. But there's a lot of lonely things throughout the journey, but especially at the beginning when you're kind of learning what to hire for and what good looks like everywhere. 100%
1: 100% agree. Exactly, and um, I guess there's this phrase "unknown unknowns" that people like. And um, if you'd asked me at the beginning what the uh, what our team would look like now, we're now a team of um, of over 400 people. It would have um, been very difficult for me to imagine that. Imagine what sort of functions we would have needed. Imagine what sort of organizational processes we would need, and um, how those would vary across countries. So in a way, you're um, on the one hand, you can operate with a long-term vision which we've got on the other hand, I think you need to be um, thinking broader brushstrokes as you get further into the future because you can have a lot of clarity over uh, you know, what you're going to achieve over the next quarter, even a couple of quarters. I think if I was to say you know, in four quarters' time, we're definitely going to do tasks X, Y, and Z, or certainly in like two or three years' time, there's too much change and there's too much new information coming in, both that can be macroeconomic change or it can be changes in customer behavior you launch a new product or a new feature and um, it performs very differently to how you expect and so everybody loves the word agile but staying agile and really um, forming your plans based on the latest information and learning you've got is super important and that's something that I think we've done a good job of holding on to as we've grown and I hope we'll continue to do so.
0: I think we're going to run out of time soon, but I wanted to cover one or two more quick things with you. One is you mentioned investors before, and I know you've talked to both U.S. and European investors. I was curious if you had a difference. You know, What is it to pitch those two groups of people and what do you find different?
1: Yes, so we're fortunate. We've got brilliant uh, investors from both sides of the pond. Our lead investors um, are, are based in the U.S., uh, General Catalyst. They're fantastic uh, investors. And... Um, The partner who um, who led the deal, who's on our board, um, gave me some coaching before I um, then went on to present to their full investment committee, said, you know, I really like your story, but I think you need to be more energetic and focus more on the vision of what you're trying to achieve rather than on some of the um, sort of like more day-to-day aspects of the, the tangible steps that you're taking in the short term. and. That was really valuable advice because it hasn't it hadn't been how I had focused my uh, my pitching up to that point, and I guess when I'd been pitching to European investors, um, my natural style, maybe having worked um, mainly in Europe, was to you know really try and build confidence that I was on top of the specifics and the detail, and had a really clear path of what we're going to do and how we're going to fund it, and I think being able to inspire that confidence is really important, but actually being able to sell this vision about how you're going to also really build an industry defining company over the long term with a really audacious vision and mission is also um, equally important. And um, now that we have a sort of transatlantic boardroom, I I hope that I've learned to, to be better at finding that balance between those two things.
0: That's great. I think they're they're both good influences to have. And then two other quick things. One, if you had to describe what you think motivates you, right? Some people are motivated by fear or competition or mission or whatnot, culture. What would you say is the thing that motivates you?
1: I'm very motivated by feedback, actually. So, um, and it's one of the things that brought me into the flower industry. You get a lot of feedback in our industry, both positive and negative. When I get a message from somebody saying, you know, you made my day or you really cheered up my grandmother who doesn't get out much or something like that because of the customer service that you gave or the attention to detail. I find that really rewarding. And I think we hear that a lot more in our industry than in industries selling more functional products. On the other hand, um, occasionally things go wrong. Um, sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's um, less directly our fault, but we're working with a perishable product and we're working with um delivery companies who sometimes make mistakes um, as much as we try to avoid that. But actually people um, do give us the, they do complain and they don't just shrug because um, the occasions that they're trusting us with are really important to them. And that feedback can sting sometimes, but it's also really helpful because we've obsessed about building systems to aggregate feedback and look for patterns and that forms a big part of our product roadmap and um, how we're thinking about developing our range and how we're thinking about hiring and things like that. And so the positive feedback is really um, inspiring. The uh, the more critical feedback is actually really helpful in um, continuing to make a better company.
0: Great, yeah, and I think the customer feedback is a huge driver for a number of founders that I've talked to. And it's great to hear that both the negative and the positive you learn from, which makes sense because it makes you better no matter what, right? And I think that's a great way to end with my last question, which is about brand. You've built an incredible consumer brand and a lot of founders are trying to do direct to consumer, but I find that it's harder than ever to build a new brand online because it's really expensive. You have to know growth marketing. You have to have a core brand essence. There's a lot of different types of people you can hire on the marketing team from performance marketing to brand to PR to social to SEO. Do you have any kind of learnings to give to people who want to start a brand from scratch on how to build a great consumer brand today?
1: Yeah, a, a couple of things. I guess firstly, um, you know, this obsession over customer feedback and not um, sort of uh, just asserting what um, what people are going to want, but really understanding um, and being humble about understanding what people do and don't want and, um, you know, and, and learning and, and changing what you offer accordingly um, has been really important to us. I think the second thing is that um, in our case, um, a lot of our growth has been viral. So, around half our customers discover us by having initially been a recipient um of Bloom and Wild uh or Bloomon or Bergamot uh, flowers or plants. And that's been a, a huge source of our growth. So we put a lot of effort into the the attention to detail into the um our product itself and we've designed our product in a way that's engaging for people who receive our product such that they'll go on to consider it for when they have a gifting occasion and we think a lot about um, about that, and I'd encourage founders to not just think about um, you know optimizing digital marketing or um, uh, out of home ads or things like that. Those are important parts of the discipline, but if you can inherently design your growth into your product in some way as well, then I think you, um, in a way that's sort of different to the norms of your industry or different to um, sort of past expectation, then. I think that creates a, a massive opportunity for to accelerate and um, you know be able to reinvest in making the product even better because your marketing is cheaper and you you know you can build a, um, a much bigger company and, and a better company more quickly by doing so.
0: Great to have you on, and thank you so much for all the candid feedback and advice. And look forward to watching you grow to the next phase of the company.
1: Thank you for having me, Maria. Have a great afternoon.
0: Thank you, Aaron, for being with me today. If you want to send someone flowers or plants with an incredible customer experience or are looking for a great startup to join, go to www.bloomandwild.com. If you want more stories like this, go to kindredcapital.vc forward slash As always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. Being a founder is just hard. Even the most successful founders face fear, doubt, and unbelievable difficulties that never make the headlines. Thanks for joining us today. And if this story resonated with you, join us for more stories like this on Founders Uncut.